Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, Borak, my man. I just want to take a second to say happy holidays. You know, I actually did not forget about getting you a gift this year. I got you a ginger brute. Unfortunately, the little sucker was a bit too quick for me and it got away. <laughs> you know, I have no idea what kind of ingredients you'd find inside of a ginger brute, but my guess is for some people it probably tastes really salty. You know something? You're absolutely right. Ginger brute looks like he has rabies. Although, does Eldraine actually have the rabies virus? You know what? I'm thinking way too hard about this. Greetings to all of you planeswalkers and spellcasters from different parts of the multiverse walking in to join us here in the Unlucky Lounge in historic Monoscrew Manor for another episode of Draft and Draft. And on a special note, be it Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Festivus, maybe you're even from Kashyyyk and celebrate Life Day. That's right, folks. I brought out the Star Wars Holiday Special to give you all a very warm and special happy holiday season. We hope that you are taking this part of the year to celebrate yourselves and all your loved ones. My name is Corey, and I am your limited lore master and denizen of this here local establishment. And joining me today, as always, is the best in the business. He is a gentleman, a scholar, and more than just a 2-2 for 2, and also wearing quite the festive hat. Please give a big welcome to our very own bear tender, Borak. Borak, how are you feeling this holiday season, my man? Oh, please. You and I both know you love wearing that hat. Anyway, today's topic is going to have us doing some comparative analysis of two sets that really kind of ring very closely to me in thematic overlays, and two sets that ended up being some of my favorite limited formats of all time. But before we do that, a few bits of housekeeping. First off, this podcast is brought to you by the Believe Network. Check them out at Believe.com. They've got great content surrounding some of your favorite topics, sports, entertainment, lifestyle, and of course, Magic the Gathering. You can also check us out on social media at Twitter, Draft and Draft Corey. Tweet at me any of your thoughts, comments, and ideas. We'd love to feature your voice in upcoming episodes. Also, we're located on the Patreon. If you feel like giving back to the Unlucky Lounge, we certainly could use your help to keep the lights on in here. But most importantly, a big thank you to anyone that's been listening for our last few episodes. This show becomes real because we join together as a community. So if you've tuned in for more than one episode, my heart goes to you. Thank you so much. And please, share us, like us, Give us an honest rating. I want to know what you think about this podcast and the Unlucky Lounge. And hopefully, with your help, we can keep this rocking and rolling all week long. Pardon the Happy Days reference. I'm just feeling so spirited here with the holiday season. With that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to today's topic. And folks, I am so excited to talk to you all about these two sets. Because if you haven't figured it out already, I am a big fan of sets that have a top-down design. Now for those of you out there who don't know, 
A top-down design set is where you take a theme that you already have some built-in knowledge to and then design a set around it. Take, for example, a set we're not going to talk about today, Amonkhet. Amonkhet is based around the lore of Egypt, or as Mark Rosewater says, it's Bullis meets Egypt. But if you look inside of Amonkhet, you can find a lot of things that we already know. Things like mummies, cartouches, pyramids, the idea of exhaustion in that kind of desert-like theme. All that equates to what we think about when we think about Egypt and deserts and anything else in the media that surrounds it. Like The Mummy, both the old one and the Brendan Fraser remakes. Ooh, and Prince of Egypt. Who remembers that movie? That is one of my favorite non-Disney animated films of all time. But this isn't an animated film podcast. No, this is about Magic the Gathering. And we are going to talk about two of my favorite top-down sets, which happen to be, in my view, two of the best well-designed limited formats of all time. We're going to put these two through the ringer in what I like to call the top-down showdown. But before we introduce our two contenders, we have a tradition here in the Unlucky Lounge. Before we get into the meet, the true main event, I want you all to hold up your glass and together, let's start this with the untap step. For those of you keen listeners out there, you have probably correctly identified that my bottle opener is in fact on my keychain. Now, unlike our storytelling episodes, these editorial showdown type affairs are not going to be told in a turn order. Instead, we are going to put our two contenders in the ring and see which one can reign victorious. So, without further ado, let's introduce our two main event fighters in the top-down showdown. Dear listeners, if you'll indulge me with my boxing ring announcer voice here. <clears throat> In one corner, the challenger. Coming out with just a few months of actual gameplay, it is the fairy tale bruiser of the magic multiverse. It's Throne of Eldraine. And in the other corner, the champion, regarded one of the best limited environments of all time as agreed upon by the internet, it is the horror of gothic horror. Give it up for the plane of Innistrad! <laughs> now, to determine the winner of this contest of champions, we're going to put Eldraine and Innistrad up against each other in a series of competitions. These competitions will look at which of these two individual planes has better limited play. Overall aesthetics individual car designs, and a few other topics. The judges will determine which of these two sets reigns supreme in that category. The plane with the most decisions in its favor will take home the championship in this top-down showdown. So, without further ado, let's ring the bell and start up with round number one. In round number one, we're going to look at the top-down aesthetics that each set has to bring to the table. First, let's start with Innistrad. 
Now, if you ask me, Innistrad itself was revolutionary in just how much a set can resonate when being played off of people's built-in knowledge. And in the case of Innistrad, all of those really cool horror tropes came through so true into the world of Magic the Gathering. I remember that moment when I first looked at Civilized Scholar and Homicidal Brute, and I just thought, okay, this is a cool looter that can become an attacker. But then when one of my friends pulled out that it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that blew my mind. That was revolutionary. I'd never seen a card affect me in such a cool way before. Then we have the tribal element here. Now, I like that there was a tribal feel to Innistrad, but it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't so pervasive throughout the whole set, like the Onslaught block or the Lorwyn block. It was there, but it wasn't make or break. You could draft a blue-white deck that wasn't necessarily a spirits deck, but if you got those spirit payoffs, it made your deck all the better. Now, as for the overall feel of the world, you gotta love and appreciate that dark and brooding feel that gave you that sense of fear. The humans in this plane were not the dominant species. It was the monsters, and it showed in those really great aesthetics that came in every single card. So let me illustrate this to you by reading off one iconic spell from the set, known as Travel Preparations. This was one in a green for a sorcery. Put a plus one plus one counter on each of up to two target creatures. You can flash the spell back for one and a white. Now if you ever drafted the green-white deck before an Innistrad that was strongly human based, you know that this was a very strong role player and key to making this deck really tick. But let's look at the aesthetics of the card for a second. Travel Preparations. If you're going to travel across the plane of Innistrad and you are a human, you had better come prepared because guess what you're gonna run into some werewolves into some vampires you might even see a ghost or two if you're not ready to encounter these denizens of the darkness then you are going to become an afternoon snack this is where i love the top-down design because it didn't just tell us what the set was about it showed us well done innistrad well done Speaking of individual cards, let's take a look at some other notable card highlights from this set. Why? Because I love nostalgia, and some of these cards, super resonant and super cool. Take for example, the modern and vintage icon of a card, Delver of Secrets. It's totally an allusion to The Fly, the classic horror film. Cloistered Youth? We all know that that's the Exorcist Girl. That's the 1-1 that transforms into a 3-1 that dings you every turn. And the Geist Catcher Rig, the 4-5 that dealt damage to spirits? Come on, y'all. That's the Ghostbusters car. I always saw it as that. Anyone else out there agree with me? Tweet at me. Agree or disagree? Geist Catcher's Rig is the Ghostbusters car. Also, new trailer. Are we excited for it? I don't know. You tell me. No, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not even sure how I feel about that trailer. Somebody, help me. Well, let's swiftly move away from my own anxiety when it comes to movie trailers, and let's take a look at the top-down aesthetics of Throne of Eldraine. Now, the cool thing about Throne is that it plays off of our nostalgic youth in a way that takes all the successes of other top-down designs 
and almost amplifies it. Take, for example, all the wonderful allusions to the Cinderella tale, Midnight Clock, Glass Slipper. They all seem kiddie, right? But yet, the Rhone of Eldraine still finds a way to integrate those fairy tales in such a way that it feels natural in the multiverse of Magic the Gathering. To do this, R&D really played with the Grimm's fairy tale versions of a lot of these classic stories. Take, for example, the story of The Little Mermaid. If we were to go to the classic Disney darling, we know that Ariel ends up happily ever after with Prince Eric. Instead, magic went more for the whole she turns into sea foam at the end of the tale. By alluding to our classic sense of the happy ending of some of these Disney Renaissance fairy tales, while still keeping the aesthetics of the classic grim fairy tales, they found a way to merge these storybook characters into the magic universe. And I can only think of the kind of doors that this might open to utilizing some other really great tales from our own youth and utilizing those top-down aesthetics and our own sense of pop culture knowledge into creating future imaginative worlds in the multiverse. And yet, despite all of what I just said, Eldraine doesn't take itself all that seriously. It's not afraid to poke some fun at the way in which you play the game. Take for example, you're playing against someone who has three mana open, two of which at least is blue. You're thinking, oh my goodness, they might just have that counterspell. What do I do in this situation? I actually say please after I cast my own spell. It's this really fun way where I can interact with the whole meta, and I have to make my opponent think twice before casting their very own didn't say please. I can look back at them and said, hey, I said please. I want you to know that in this whole equation. How fun is that? It almost feels somewhat silver-bordered in the way that it takes over multiple senses of the game. But let's draw some more parallels to Innistrad. You see, both sets do the same thing with playing up this kind of humans and non-humans dynamic. Obviously, we talked before about how the humans were losing in Innistrad. Here in Eldraine, we've got the whole court system of knights versus the fairy tale characters and the monsters that lived in the forest. And what's more fascinating is that we were able to do this not just by a color divide, but by mechanical divides. The knights played well with each other, and the monsters had some of their own mechanics as well. They loved playing with food. They loved playing with artifacts and enchantments. It gave an almost hyper-magical feel compared to just making it a color divide. What a clever design strategy that WotC came up with. Let's talk about some of those individual card designs once more that really came through to me. And I know that people have talked about these over and over again. But take for example, Curious Pair. That's Hansel and Gretel, y'all. You've got Midnight Clock. Whenever I would play that card, I would always say the clock is now one o'clock or the time is now seven o'clock. I once had a deck where I got to draft two of those. It's really good when you get to one-sided time twister. Then of course we have the pair of Oathsworn Knight and Kenrith the Return King. It's unmistakably allusions to Monty Pythons and the Holy Grail. I mean come on everyone, who doesn't love some good dry British humor? 
And of course, those two cards are also alluding to the Arthurian legend. All respect to the once and future king. Okay, so we've got a lot of the top-down aesthetics of Innistrad and Eldraine established as a baseline. I'd say at this point, the two sets are quite even in their aesthetics and in their overall top-down feel. But we still have to make a decision. And to do that, I want to have an individual card off. If you look between limited sets, you can find certain definable things. For example, each limited set has some piece of black common removal that's intended to be a catch-all. In fact, let's go ahead and take a look at these black limited removal catch-alls in our individual card showdown. Now, quick recollection to all my listeners out there. This is the round where we're looking at top-down aesthetics. So we're not necessarily focusing on the power level of the cards. Instead, what the card evokes into us, how it makes us feel. Let's start off with Innistrad's bit of black removal. It was a card known as Victim of the Night. It was black-black, instant. Destroy target non-vampire, non-werewolf, non-zombie creature. Now I like what this card does in context of the whole set. As we talked about before, it had a very monsters versus humans kind of vibe to it, Innistrad did. And this card really helps bring out that flavor. And I must say, when it comes to top-down design, if you can hone in on a really good name, it brings the whole package together. And I think Victim of the Night is a great example of this. I don't know if anyone else out there was like me, but when you cast this card, you kind of hummed a little refrain from Andrew Lloyd Webber's ditty, Phantom of the Opera. Listen to the victim of the night. Was that just me? No? Tweet at me. Make me feel not so weird. Okay, thanks. Looking at Eldraine, the black catch-all piece of removal spell. Bacon to a pie. Two colorless and black black destroy target creature at instant speed and create a food token. I mean, this card just hits on all the dials. It makes a creature go into a pie. It turns it into food. How satisfying is that? And if I may once more use my musical theater knowledge to connect this whole package together, this to me feels very Sweeney Todd-like. Love it. Yes, I'm a big fan of musicals. But just to add a little extra rubbins for bacon to a pie, you get to physically say, I bake your creature into a pie. And then that food token can play a greater factor on the game as a whole. It's so satisfying. And so, with that being said, I would give a slight advantage edge to bake into a pie as an overall top-down aesthetic card. It's so satisfying. And with that little edge, I'm going to let this first round go to Throne of Eldraine for having the best top-down aesthetics between these two sets. Throne of Eldraine up right now one to nothing. Let's swiftly move on to round number two. In round number two, we're going to take a look at each set and how innovation plays a massive factor with how people perceive and look at each plane. First off, Innistrad. I think the biggest visual innovation of the set was the usage of flip cards. I have heard it described before as a big risk, big reward scenario. If people loved it, great. 
If not, the unusual nature of it could probably turn a lot of players off. I mean, in all truth, without those checklist cards, this mechanic does force everyone to need to use sleeves, which asks all players to invest more money into an already expensive game. But I think universally we can all agree, transform cards are such a really cool addition to the game. It's got this really wonderful way of conveying the story of something changing state. Now this isn't the first time that we've ever seen cards literally go through a transformation. Look at the Kamigawa block. We had flip cards. But the truth is visually, they're just so conversely different. A flip card, yeah, you turn it over and you can clearly see what the card does. But a transform card does so many different things to how this actual physical thing changes. If you are actually using sleeves, you have to take the card out of the sleeve, turn it around, and put it back in. If no sleeves, you're still flipping it forward and back. You have an actual physical tactile attachment to the transformation of this card. Also, by using the back, you have even more space to convey the story of the transformation of this character. What a really amazing way of us showing this actual physical transformation, more than just in a strategic way, but also in a multi-sensory input kind of way. Also let it be known the idea of transformation fits in perfectly with the storytelling of Innistrad. I mean, think about all the horror tropes of humans transforming into werewolves, vampires, zombies, etc, etc, and they took a really good opportunity to unveil this big, massive dichotomy shift to the way that we can perceive magic cards and how they can be used in the future. So much so that this transform mechanic has ascended past just the horror trope and is found in so many different sets now. It just does a great job of conveying that sense of transformation and change and giving you an attachment to it. And while we're on the idea of innovation, let us not forget the way that Innistrad played on these classic horror tropes in itself was a big way of kind of changing the way that we see the game. Certainly we had some really resonant top-down designs before, take for example all the really cool stuff that we saw out of Arabian Nights, but now we're really playing into pop culture stuff, the late night movie stuff that we grew up with or tried to sneak while our parents thought that we were asleep but we turned the TV on in our room and searched for anything that made us feel more adult than we actually were. They're playing on nostalgia, folks. The exact same thing that I'm trying to do with this podcast. Did I just say all my secrets out loud? I don't even care because the innovation of Innistrad using these cool classic horror tropes is worth be revealing a little bit out of my secret bag to all of you here in the Unlucky Lounge today. Innovation with Innistrad complete, let's go to Eldraine. Now when it comes to the innovative factor of Eldraine, I think the one thing that really stands out to all of us are those stunning storybook card frames. What else do I need to say that everyone else on the internet hasn't already said? They look gorgeous. They have such great art and kind of convey another sense of the story. I mean, I'm still delighted when I open a pack and find one of these cards in this new age storybook frame. 
I mean, look at Lovestruck Beast. Just looking at that card compared to the non-storybook card, I so get that lovely Beauty and the Beast tale just a little bit more. Speaking of opening packs and storybook frames, the other innovation are the collector boosters that came out of Throne of Eldraine. Now certainly, it is a little bit heavier on the pocket at a larger MSRB, but still, there's something really cool about opening up those as well. So many premium cards, a chance for multiple rares and rares that you don't find in the normal set, it is a level of excitement. The idea of Project Booster Fun, I think was a bit of a success. But just bringing it back to what this round is about in innovation, we should know that this idea of a collector booster, it's probably not going to go away anytime soon. It feels like it did very well for Wizards, it did well for stores, and it's going to keep coming back. We know that Theros Beyond Death is going to have these same collector boosters with alternative art frames. Thus, Eldraine itself deserves some credence in the idea of innovation, that this was the start of those new booster evolutions. Continuing though on innovation, let's look deeper in the set. The other real kind of big new gameplay innovation was the idea of the adventure cards. They're great. I love when a card gives me two separate cards, even if the card is a little bit off rate of what it should cost. But there's still something about these adventure cards that kind of tells me this is a mechanic that's been done before, but just kind of slightly altered. It's kind of like flashback, except flash forward where you cast a spell and then you get the creature. Totally fine, very functionable and serviceable as a mechanic, but it just feels like a little tweak on pre-existing things. Although the storybook idea of it, the way it looks on the actual card, so cool. I'm into it and I get it. However, the fact that it doesn't feel like too much of a gameplay innovation means I'm gonna give the slight edge in this round to the plane of Innistrad. <laughs> so right now we're tied one and one going into the big climactic final round number three. Wait, hold on Borak, what do you mean I've missed something? I mean, come on, that's not all that relevant to this whole discussion about the two sets. Okay, fine, we'll do it, you big crybaby. Okay, fine, whatever, cry bear. Anyway, Borak just pointed out that I did a comparison of black removal, but we should do the same for the stereotypical uncommon 2-2 two, two for 2 that's in each set. So let's just go ahead and do it before Borak gets any more ants in his pants. <laughs> You know what, Furball? I really don't need to know about all of your eating habits, thank you. Let's look at our uncommon two twos for two. First off, we're looking at Throne of Eldraine, Sir Farron the Hedgehammer. He's green green for a legendary creature, Human Knight. Whenever Sir Farron the Hedgehammer attacks, another target attacking creature gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is Sir Farron's power. Now quite clearly, he's really aggressively slanted. Good when you're attacking with another creature, in fact, that's kind of when he's only really good. The green-green cost is a steep one to incur, especially when you're in the developing part of the game. Plus, Surferon's quite good when you're at parity, 
a little bit better when you're ahead, but he's really bad when you're behind. You don't just want to be swinging this creature in when your opponent can easily trade it off. However, if you ever combine Sir Farron with some kind of pre-combat main phase attack pump, like a spell, or an equipment, or an aura, this is when things get a little wacky and a little out of hand. I've played before with Sir Farron, and it feels really good to pre-combat some kind of spell and make your entire team go a little sideways crazy in the power level. Also, as a side note, yes, Sir Farron is a knight, so you do get to play with some of those knight synergy cards. Although when you're in the green color, you don't get as many great knight payoffs, but you'll still find one or two if you're actively searching for it. Now, Sir Farron is going head-to-head -head with the uncommon 2-2 from Innistrad known as Gastoff Shepherd. For one to green, you get a 2-2 with the werewolf text. If no spells were cast in the last turn, you transform Gastoff Shepherd. On the other side, you've got a 3-3 that has Intimidate, and then again that Werewolf text that if a player casts two or more spells last turn, you transform him back into the human side. Now this becomes a 3-3 evasion creature for two mana? That's pretty great. Now granted, once we got further along in the format, we knew how to manage the werewolf flipping and also the green-red werewolf deck in Triple Innistrad was not exactly the place that you wanted to be. <laughs> Sorry Borak, I just call it as I see it. All that being said though, the one colorless and one green cost made it so much easier to cast and became really good in multiple different phases of the game. It's good when you're at parity because of the transform, it's good in developing because it's way, way easy to cast, and it acts as a pretty great curve filler. So all that being said, I kinda gotta go with the Gastov Shepherd. But you insisted on it, Borak. Which one do you prefer, Sir Farron or the Gastov Shepherd? Wait, hold on, Borok. You can't just say that it's Sir Farron because there's a bear in the picture of the card. Yeah, but that very same bear is being suplexed by Sir Farron in the card out muscle. Pardon me, I like to smash face just as much as the next person. I don't just like to do a bunch of card drawing. Okay, clearly you and I are not going to find a consensus here. Let's just move to the next round and call this one a draw. Hey, I'm not a coward. Anyway, back to the main event where we're going to go to the last round to decide it all here in the Top Down Showdown. Welcome to round number three. In round number three, we're going to fulfill our namesake. We're going to look at these two sets side to side in limited gameplay. That means drafting and in sealed to see which one is going to come out victorious in this top-down showdown. Let's start by breaking down the various different types of decks that you can find in each of these sets. From a purely numbers point of view, both sets have upwards towards 10 to 14 different deck archetypes, depending on how you might evaluate certain color combinations come through. I think this is one of the factors why I wanted to put these two sets together. They have so many great deck archetypes that can be drafted. 
compared to, say, sets like Ravnica or a purely tribal set, having such a great central focus like creature type or color pairing, it's satisfying. We love seeing it, we love exploring it in the card design, but when it comes to limited play, it can end up bottlenecking the number of decks that could actually be feasibly drafted or put together from a sealed pool. But back anyway to the matter at hand, Innistrad and Eldraine. I think they have a certain equal number of different types and kinds of decks. So then the questions come down to the judges here in the Unlucky Lounge of what kinds of decks really stand out in each of the formats. When it comes to Eldraine, the monocolor decks really took me by surprise. I never thought I'd have so much fun just drafting one color. Typically, I love splashing into three, maybe four colors when the format supports it. But with Eldraine, you can start by really digging deep into one color and let your adamant payouts really become payouts in the way that you draft your actual deck. You can backdoor into a second color somewhere in early slash mid pack two, get solid payoffs, and still end up playing 11 of one land and maybe seven of the other in other color sources. It's great. It's a breath of fresh air, and I really hope that Wizards of the Coast continues to explore things that have always been possible, but really push it in archetypes, in payouts, and in the way the whole set is designed. So kudos for monocolor, Eldraine, but here comes Innistrad. Let's talk about some decks that you could draft in Innistrad. I mentioned before, travel preparations. So much fun, great aggressive deck. Black-red vampires, also really solid, aggressive kind of drafting deck. It was laid out in the way the cards looked, but then the way you played it, the more you explored it, you started to notice things that, well, the cards that didn't seem very good ended up being important role players. Nightbird's Clutches, a great falter con. There was even space for Bump in the Night, a mono black red flashback spell that just burned people for three damage. Who would have thought a card like that actually was somewhat playable. And why? Because the entire set was surrounded by really cool build-around cards. Let's talk about Burning Vengeance. Two and a red, when you cast a spell out of your graveyard, you get to deal two damage to any target. I mean, you take your flashback spells and then you just add more to it? It's like when you go to a candy store and then Willy Wonka's like, what, you think that Wonka bar is pretty cool? <laughs> well, here's an everlasting gobstopper to add to it. Take that. What are you going to do, leave the gobstopper behind? No, you take your Burning Vengeance and you go to town. And with that Burning Vengeance, it gave you motivation sometimes to play flashback spells that you didn't even think that you'd want to play. I played so many Rolling Tremblers, which essentially is a flashback version of Pyroclasm, but because of the presence of, let's say, certain invisible stalking creatures, I would tend to main deck it more often than not, if only to try and stop these really renegade strategies. But, we talk about flashback, we can't go without talking about a card that you and I were both thinking about. 
Moan of the Unhallowed. Man, you get to make two tutus, then flashback, make more tutus. Zombie decks, let's do it. Then you had the stitcher mechanic in blue, exiling creature cards, making big flyers. Wait, what was that, Borok? Wait, did you say Silent Departure? Yes, I love Silent Departure. An unsummoned that you get to flash back? What fa- Oh, you mean Grip of Phantasms? That's such a great flashback spell too. Putting creatures on top of your opponent's library, I mean, when you're casting the card, it's great, but when you're on the receiving end, it feels like the- Okay, Borak, I'll stop trolling you. We can't go talking about Innistrad without the iconic card, Spider Spawning. The darling flashback card that brings in and out basically 7,252 1-2 reach spiders. And then you also play your Falcon Wrath Noble, and your opponent scoops up their cards and you say GG. Yes, spider spawning was in Innistrad, and for that and all the other things I just ranted about, I gotta give deck archetypes the edge to Innistrad. But where there's good stuff, there's also some stuff where I'm like, what in the world? Let's talk about some of the most unfair things that you can do in each of these sets. First, back to the challenger, Eldraine. Now, if I were to look at any single kind of card combination that looked just way too crazy good, it would probably come down to one particular card combination, and that is the combo of Witch's Oven and Cauldron Familiar. This ability to reoccur a 1-1 that blocks a lot of threats in the format while also draining and having no perpetual end in sight through traditional removal means, this is a crazy combo. I remember once facing down a very efficient Red White Knights deck, who for all intents and purposes, definitely should have stomped my green black food control deck. But here comes the one-two punch. Turn one, the kitty cat. Turn two, the witch's oven. And I was off to the races making a bunch of pie made from cats. Hey look, Sweeney Todd references come back. I'm not making these up, they're just happening. But let's not forget the greater point. These two cards, when put together, just can't be answered by traditional means. It's insane, it's good, it's satisfying, and it definitely deserves to be put on the list of unfair things that you can do in Throne of Eldraine. So that is one duo of cards that is pretty unsurmountable. But let's compare that to another duo of cards, and that is Invisible Stalker plus Butcher's Cleaver. Now for anyone who's new to the game and never had a chance to put these two cards together, let me just give you a very brief description of what this is. This is an unblockable, untargetable creature that wears a piece of equipment that also kills you quicker and also gains you life. It's insane. When you get a 4-1 unblockable, untargetable, life-linking attacker, what are you supposed to do about that? What do you do? This is nuts. Oh, now some point down the line, I think people are gonna look back at 
the Cauldron Familiar and Witch's Oven combo with some level of equal negative reverence, but it, it can't reach the same kind of feeling that you would get with the Butcher's Cleaver and the Invisible Stalker. Not only is the clock so much different, but in Throne of Eldraine, there was actually a lot of reasons to just naturally run some disenchantment or artifact removal. And so for all these little considerations, Throne of Eldraine, you get the advantage for having the least unfair, too uncommon combo type thing. Basically, Eldraine, you are a little bit more reasonable than Invisible Stalker and Butcher's Cleaver. Congratulations. Big accomplishment. And our final test here in round number three is the way in which the games played out. Now, first, let's start with Innistrad. We mentioned all the deck archetypes before, using spider spawning, using burning vengeance, but we never talked about the value of what this set brought, the strength of self-mill. Now, for enfranchised Magic players who had been around for years or maybe played in older draft formats, you already knew that when you self-milled yourself, it was often a resource for you to take advantage of. Take a look at Threshold. Take a look at Dredge. But to me, it was Innistrad that brought it into a limited environment where I found that level up moment. You put a bunch of cards into your graveyard for future considerations, knowing that your spider spawning is going to get larger, knowing that you might lose the first go around of a spell, but you get it on the way back, and you're basically just netting card advantage. And then that opens you up to larger possibilities. What else can you flashback? Well, let's talk about one of my favorite self-mill payoffs. This, my friends, this is a card known as Memory's Journey. It was a blue spell that said target player shuffles up to three cards from their graveyard into their library, then one green to flash it back. You first look at this card and you think, this does nothing. Then when you mill it and then you put your best three cards that you self-milled back into your library, leaving the chief in the graveyard to only make your draws better, this is like Magical Christmas Land meets Hanukkah meets Kwanzaa meets Life Day meets Festivus meets literally any fictional holiday that I could come up with. I love it. In fact, I would be reminded of this whole mechanic later on in Ravnica Allegiance when you would play Double Clear the Mind. This is the stuff that Limited is all about. It makes you feel clever when you're playing these cards. Now let's contrast our talk about Innistrad in gameplay with Throne of Eldraine. Now when it comes to the different decks and how they played out, I think both sets had pretty even distributions of aggressive, controlling, and oddball strategies. In Eldraine, being able to store up all of your adventure spells and then cash them in later on, that felt pretty good. Lucky Clover stands in that same kind of place that Burning Vengeance does. Doubling up all of your adventure spells, oh, it's so good. If you've ever double Reaper of Night somebody off of their entire hand, ooh, that is the salt. Like pink Himalayan salt. Then there's a certain elegance to food tokens. 
the way that you have to manage your food input and output, making sure that you have enough resources for cards that are coming, things that are in your hand, making sure you also manage your life total when you're facing down particularly aggressive strategies. If I could describe it in one word, I'd use neat. And the truth is, I've liked all of these little artifact token generations that we've been going through in the last five, seven years. Ever since Shadows Over Innistrad that brought us investigation, then we had treasure tokens and now food. What a fun way to kind of play around in different design space. And I look forward to seeing where Magic might go with it in the future. But the question is, where do the judges land here in round number three? It's pretty close. It's a neck and neck race. But which of our two sets just edges out gameplay and deck archetypes? Well, if you ask me, it's closer than I believe anyone might think. But I'm going to put the final judgment here in the unlucky lounge on the side of the plane of Innistrad. So congratulations, Innistrad. You are the winner of our top-down showdown here today in the Unlucky Lounge. But I did want to bring this whole debate up because I think that Eldraine deserves a little more credit than maybe what it has right now in the contemporary. Certainly it's not as clever feeling as when you draft Spider Spawning or Memory's Journey in Innistrad. However, I do think there's a certain love and elegance that Eldraine has when you put the decks together. The usage of food combined with the monocolored nature of it, I think it's going to go down five years from now as maybe close to an all-timer. I also wanted to take this platform to highlight that some of the satisfaction elements of Eldraine come when you interact with people. Things like baking your opponent's creature into a pie, or saying please into a blue player who's got three open mana. All of this adds up to the really truly fun feel that you get when you're interacting with a person. It makes the whole thing feel like a story that's being told. But we also want to know your story, your narrative. What do you think about our top-down showdown here tonight? Do you agree with my opinions? Do you feel, well, maybe we forgot something? A card or two, or an interaction that you truly cherish? Then come online and let us know. Tweet at me, Draft and Draft Corey, and tell me what you think. Also, big shout out to this day of the week, folks. It is Friday. It is the end of the traditional work week, but it is also the day for FNM, Friday Night Magic. Go out to your local game store, play a draft, get some Commander in, maybe some Pioneer Standard, whatever. But go find that store and have some fun. You deserve it after a long, hard week. Now, as this show wraps up, a few reminders. This podcast is brought to you by the Believe Network. Check them out at Believe.com or find all of their stuff wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can find us at Patreon, Draft and Draft, an MTG podcast. We got some great tiered benefits, and if you want to become one of our loyal patrons, then we love you. But even if not, we still love you. That is called unconditional love. 
And we would love you even more if you subscribe to us, like us, give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. We just want our name to get out there and so we can all join together and create a community of magic, storytelling, and having some fun. So come on in. Doors always open. Well, friends, it looks like I've found the bottom of my bottle, and so we've reached the end of our episode. So until next time, go out and brew up some sweet memories of your own. My name is Corey, and thanks for listening to Draft and Draft. We'll see you again next week. Hey, say, Borak, I think this week our opinions were quite polarizing. Sorry, man. I know that joke was a bit unbearable, but I had to go for it. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.